Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, powerlifter, occasional Highland Games athlete, and uh, that's about it. I run Strength Guild. It is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, associate professor at the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, and now the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. Oh. Still in South Padre for a couple more days, and then we'll slowly start making our way back. And it's supposed to be wind today, which will be nice. It's, it was light wind yesterday and very light during the week. It's Better windy here, so if that means anything, you're not that uh, south of me. The wind down so, here. Yeah. Sort of kite. <laughs> yeah. Doing stuff outside with some UV on you and stuff. I mean, it seems to be the thing, the, the thing to do, healthy thing to do in this pandemic world. Yeah, especially it's kind of sort of self-isolating in itself then, too. Yes, totally. <laughs> totally. If you're within six feet of someone else on a kite board, there's probably going to be an issue. Yeah. <laughs> right? So <laughs> it's probably not very safe. Once in a while, we try to do the, the high fives, but that's on purpose. So <laughs> Right on. So. Uh, okay, everybody, it's episode 600, so uh, we are going to just um, touch on there's some mail and news we got to work through here because some of it's going to get old if I don't talk about it, and I, I don't want to talk about new science news. It's all old. Um, and then after the break, we're going to talk about then and now, so sort of the origins of the show, what's changed over the years, like um, competitive experiences or you know, our focus, maybe now and in the future, all that sort of thing. Let me start with uh, some mail. This first one is from Nathan, and he says, Hi, uh, I would love it if you guys could, could could discuss the following on the show. I'm sure this has been answered, but the archives are too deep to search through. <laughs> so <laughs> you know you've been at it Good for problem. a while. Yeah. yeah. You can't even, I can't even search. There's too much to even search. Uh over the last two years, I became detrained due to a relocation and job change, but life has stabilized for me now, and I'm able to start training again. Uh, perhaps after COVID, many people will be in a similar situation. Right now, I do three to four times per week, five, three, one, with assistance work. My question is about body composition as it relates to strength training. I have an endomorph body, and listeners, if you're not familiar, right, somatotypes just describe someone's shape and some suggestions to body fatness versus leanness and angularity um, uh, in the sense that I am able to gain weight quite easily uh, and it likes to stay. 
I am able to cut down to about 13 to 14% fat and do so about once a year, but it seems that after a couple short months of lifting and eating, I'm back up to 20% fat. Uh, maybe that's my set point. I really like how strong I feel at this composition, but I'm not particularly pleased with how soft I appear around the edges. It doesn't seem like my cardio fitness is poor, if that means anything. Can you recommend a dietary strategy to recompose and lean out a little bit without strength suffering? Uh, also, if I decide to lean out again, what type of transition and maintenance diet would keep fat gain from reoccurring? Ideally, I could carry 13 to 15% body fat and keep my lift strong. Thanks, Nathan. All right, well, let's start with the uh, gym owner. What do you think, Phil? Like, you know, are you – any thoughts about, you know, he doesn't want to be 20% fat, but he feels strong there, you know, um, and then maybe Mike can do- – uh, I mean, there's, there's so many variables. It's I mean, without knowing what he's doing to get down to 13 and what he's doing after that to get back up to 20, um, it's hard to, like, fix the issue because I don't know what's broken <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. without – being, I mean, other than that, I mean, the the simple thing is some people do need to carry more body fat to be strong. So, I mean, it depends on what his goal is. Like, I talk to people all the time about goals, and if his goal is to be as strong as he possibly can, then it doesn't align well usually with being as lean as you can. Um, mm-hmm. That'd be the first thing we'd have to address, and that's just a that's on the mental side of things. It's like the whole chasing two rabbits thing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if one of those is drastically more important, you're just going to have to realize that one is going to suffer a little bit. Um, you know, this time for me, I've found that just eating normal, I've lost, uh, what am I at? Almost 40 pounds since my last meet. And I've done a pretty good job of hanging on to damn near everything. Uh, but I'm not dieting really. So I'm just eating normal instead of cramming my face full of whatever I want. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, you might mess up. I would probably want to see what he's eating, and let's mess with that before we mess with how much. Because uh, yeah. even that could help. You know, if he's just eating a bunch of shit, just going to better food could probably swing things in the right direction. You know, if he's going on these long diets, 13%, and he's like, I'm just done, and goes right back to what he did before. Of course, you're going back up to 20%. So it's we probably need to instill some long-term habits as far as food goes, would be my guess. Right. Yeah. I so. thought you might say something about just, what's wrong with 20%, bro? <laughs> well, know, that like, too. I mean, if you're strong, you know. And there's only a certain percentage of the population that's meant to walk around at 10% or low teens. Nat- yeah. Naturally. Just Yeah. And legit number, not like <laughs> yes. what the internet says, because everyone's ten exactly. percent on the internet. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, there's just there's not a lot of people that do that, and most of them are young. <laughs> you know, when mm-hmm. you're sixteen, eighteen, twenty, it's different than when you're. How old did he say he was? I think he said he was in his thirties or late thirties or forties. Shit changes, man. I'm I'm not as lean as I was, and I can't be even when I eat up. Like when my last meet at. 280, I was a lot softer 280 than I was uh, when I was 30. But I was stronger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So It's true. It may be just getting comfortable with being, you know, if you're going to be in your big strong phase, maybe you just look at it like an off-season, on-season thing, right? And when you do lean down to your point, Phil, 
maybe your lifts do go down, but you're like, well, it's summer. I want to be lean. You yeah, know, uh, I don't have to have maximum like PRs, you know, in the squat and dead all the time. And that's all on the mental side of things. It's like, what do you care? He needs to address. Why do you think you need to be 13 percent? Yeah. You know, what what do you gain out of that? Oh, I mean, I just I've reached the point. I don't care. <laughs> you know? yeah. The only thing that I care about, like when I eat up, I don't care that I'm bigger and, and softer. Uh, the only thing that sucks for me is just life sucks. You know, lifting's amazing. That's the only thing that's good mm-hmm. when I'm 285. <laughs> mm-hmm. But everything, and then like right now, I'm super comfortable. I'm at varying in between 242 and 252 on any given day, and I feel good. And my training goes well too. So, and I can eat whatever I want. You know, I'm I'm happy. I'm good. Right. So. Mike, what about your thoughts as far as like, uh, you know, dietary strategy, a transition back to a maintenance diet after he gets down to 13, you know, percent? Yeah. I mean, the the first question I would have, and maybe he said it a little bit, would be the timelines. Because uh, similar to Phil, like I just found that as I get a little bit older, and I don't know if it's necessarily an age thing or the amount of time I spend at different body weights per se, but like to get leaner from where i was before like i just decided i'm just gonna just take a couple of years because i'm in no hurry and i didn't want to lose all my strength because you know the lifts i want to do and what i want to accomplish for rowing and grip stuff are kind of the main priority but i'm like "Mm, can i still make progress and you know just do it at a leaner weight um and initially i got probably a little bit too aggressive with it and lost a bunch of weight and then my strength just like plummeted Mm. (laughs) I'm like, oh, that probably wasn't so good. And then I find once it becomes more difficult that, okay, maybe this is kind of just another plateau. So I'm going to do a little bit more of a break and I'm just going to stay at maintenance and make sure my lifting is going really well. And then I'll do that for two, three, four, five months at a time sometimes and then, you know, go back down again. Um, Because also in my case, I've realized I'm probably never going to go back up to like 245 again anyway so i'm trying to do this more as a permanent thing mm-hmm. um, but for clients i think and i got this from my buddy dr ben house is you know what are kind of your buffers on each end like what's the highest you ever want to get for your goals and what's the lowest you ever want to get and then just try to hang out within those two areas you know so if you're really trying to get strong maybe 20 percent is your your top end for body fat and if you're really trying to get lean maybe 13% is kind of your, your bottom end. Unfortunately, like Phil was saying, I, I don't know of any way to predict that without actually doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a couple of clients where, yeah, they can stay you know, as males pretty, you know, legit 13, 14%, which is pretty damn lean. I mean, it's not competition lean, but it's lean compared to the population. Um, and they're fine. You know, other people like to get, you know, legit 12%, getting close to 10% was they did it. their life sucked and they're like i never want to do that again (laughs) yeah and that's you know doing it even in a you know taking the time doing it more intelligent manner all that kind of stuff um so everyone's gonna have i think a little bit different you know threshold and like phil said you have to determine for him like you know what is kind of his goals and what are you you're trading off you know so someone comes to me and says hey i want to add five pounds of lean body mass and I want to be, you know, 10 pounds lighter, right? So recomposition, eh, 
I'm probably going to see if we can get some easy gains by changing food quality, getting a little bit more cardiovascular, upping their NEAT, maybe get them to lose 10 pounds, and then try to spend the next nine months working on their strength and adding five pounds of lean body mass. All right, so I'm going to take that time period and prioritize one or the other. If they're brand new and never have lifted, yeah, you can do kind of some recomposition. They'll probably just happen along the way. But if they've been lifting for a while, I think you need to pick your prioritization and then do that for a period of time because otherwise I've seen people just end up in the middle a year later and they're just not happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, both you guys are kind of referring to time timelines, and I think that's sort of the key with a lot of this stuff um, as far as how long your diet is, you know, um, a good point about what you can realistically hold, right? Because when, when you look at the cover of a magazine and Nathan knows this, I'm sure, but that's a very temporary state of being like you're competitive, you know, you're four or 5% fat. Um, There's only a handful of specimens in the world that can be low single digits like that and maintain it for any length of time. It's a very temporary state of being. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, rule of thumb, this is just a Lonnie rule, but uh, about 12% is when I was young, That's I, I like to stay about there. Because I feel you, Nathan, as, as far as you don't want to look sloppy, you know. And so for me, it was like, you know, low teens. I was I could handle that mentally, and maybe I do have a little bit of a body image thing from all those years of, of bodybuilding and whatnot. Especially because you get a taste of how shredded you know you you can be. But to Mike's point about highs and lows, that's not my real low. That's an incredibly temporary mm-hmm. walk on stage, shivering and and <laughs> twitching. You know. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that I, I said enough, you know, uh, the last time I competed, I was probably down around 5% fat and I was doing some dramatic stuff with, you know, the liquid, like the pulse fast, uh, protein sipping on Fridays and nothing else. And, and all this kind of stuff. And when, uh, during one of the warm up shows, one of the judges just said, you just look like you're two or three weeks out still. And I'm like, listen, I have striations in my quads, you know, a little bit in my triceps, I, I'm never going to get my glutes to come in if that's what you want because I'm going to have to lose dozens more pounds, you know, and I am not going to compete as a freaking middleweight. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, and if that's what it takes, then no thank you, you know. So I, I, I was interested in bodybuilding like the old-fashioned guys did, you know, or the, the Muscle Beach guys did, um, not um, body-wasting, you know, and to me, it was kind of becoming body wasting at, at, at some point. But transition diets, I would suggest, and Mike alluded to this, the rule of thumb, even clinically in like textbooks, has been about 10% of your body weight, body mass, uh, up or down, and then hold it for several months. Um, in other words, if you're 200 pounds, plus or minus about 20, you know, don't go, try to go much outside of that range because there's a lot of enzymes and hormones and whatnot. It's just going to work against you. Um, during refeeds, last time I competed, I was lean enough and I was starting to get injured. I actually wanted to put a fair amount of body fat back on quickly. And so I did not do the reverse feed transition thing. I, I like Dairy Queen blizzards, baby. <laughs> and, and I went and ate the blizzards. You know, It's kind of the opposite of what Phil does. You know, when you force feed and then you just want to mm-hmm. stop i was starving and i just wanted yeah. to come back to some sense of normalcy and i very consciously yeah. um 
eight blizzards a couple of times a week, and that did it, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so, yeah, the transition thing, we've said this over the years many times, and I appreciate, Nate, Nathan, that you can't search and find this stuff necessarily with 600 episodes, but keeping the weights up while you're dieting is, I just think, key. Everybody has different tolerance for volume, you know, sets mm-hmm. and rips, but uh, I always found that when I dieted, uh, like my goal was if I could still squat 405 for just even a couple reps, uh, uh, just a week or two before a competition, that mm-hmm. told me that I was still somehow minimally not just crashing and burning into wussy weights, you know, and losing a bunch of mass. So if you can keep keep uh, – maybe you trim the the volume if you have to, but you keep the weight up. Something about keeping the weight up I just think is really important. Um Otherwise, why would your strength hang around as you leaned out, right? Your body's just doing what you ask it to do. Um, so, Direct inverse to what a lot of the magazines say, or, you know, just switch to doing all reps and get a pump. Yeah, that's one thing that we've preached, I think, from the start, and I agree 100%. Yeah. Like, all the people I've helped get ready for shows and things, the big thing we do with them when we're dieting is you have to back off the volume. Yeah. Because you don't have the calories coming in now. That's me. Yeah. And if you want to make, you want to hold on to muscle. To me, it only makes sense that you try and hold on to strength. Yep. Because it's they they're definitely they're correlated. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And then once you're eating up, do a shitload of volume because you have this potential. You have caloric potential to gain muscle. Mm-hmm. And so let's do a crapload of volume when you're coming back up. Uh, right. The opposite, like Mike said, of what the magazines tell you. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. I guess that's that's our advice then, Nathan. Keep keep the weights up. I think you know that. Um, don't just start doing these toning high volume workouts. That's ridiculous. And I know you wouldn't do that. Um, think about realistic time frames. You know, if you're twenty percent and you want to get down to thirteen or fourteen, I'd have to literally calculate that out. But you know, I'm a fan of longer diets frankly you know give yourself 16 weeks or something if you have to uh to make a transition that way you can add in stuff like you know the some pre-breakfast um non-panting cardio or you can kind of do this in sort of a mild way in addition to your because it doesn't mess with your training you know later in the afternoon and just kind of assess and see where where you are you know and once you're down that lean think about how long do i want to stay down here you know, if your weights are low, yeah. it really depends on your goal then. Well, I think the time thing is important as well. When we talk about it, he's saying that he thinks his set point is 20%. So I think you're making a big mistake if you are getting to 13 and then going right back to eating. If you want your body to yeah. stay at 13, you need to get to 13 and you need to just stay there a long period. Of right. Time. Just like yes. I have people doing when they go up. When we go, when I have somebody go up, let's say we'll go up 20 pounds. Okay, now we're going to hold that for months. And your body starts to get comfortable with that new amount of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say at one point, I mean, I've been at all the spectrum. At one point when I was younger, at like 320, 320 pounds is where my body wanted to be. Wow. And then I got yeah. into training. And I got that down to, you know, 190 pounds. And then from there, it's been a, it's been a consistent battle up for the last 20 years. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago where if I was doing what I'm doing now, I'd be sitting at like 218. Mm-hmm. But now I just eat regular and I sit at 250. 
Right. Yep. <clears throat> you know? Yeah. And so it's you need to give it, but you have to stay there for a, a a long period of time for your body to be like, you can't just get there and be like, okay, now stay. <laughs> right. Don't keep doing what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that's what people do. They they say yeah. this is the new me. It's like, well, yeah. no. And I have never seen data, Mike. Maybe you have, and maybe it's too individual to to make a rule of thumb like this, but. How many months do you have to hold a new body weight before your hypothalamus or whatever, you know, a regulatory homeostatic systems in your body says, hey, this this is now my set point. Yeah, this is me. Um, so, I don't know. It's a long time, though. It's months and months. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Minimally. I've never seen any good data on it, but my gut feeling and experience is that it's much longer mm-hmm. than what we think. And it's different mm-hmm. from one person to the next, too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could do a whole episode on that. So, <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah, because that's that's tough. Yeah. So at least, ho- hopefully, there's something there as far as your opinions there, Nathan. This other um, mail and the the reviews are much lighter fare. I just thought you guys might find this funny. I don't know if this is just a marketing email or not. If if it's a real guy who listens, then um, right on. But this is from Carlos. Um, Hi, I hope all is well. I just have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast has good performance. In the following countries, we are number two in the fitness category in Namibia. Oh, mm. we made it. Wow. We are position number four in the fitness category in Botswana. <laughs> oh. So, and then there's a couple of other things out here. We're number five in Serbia, number five in Nepal. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting. Well, I want to say hello to all my Namibian friends. Namibian friends, right. Right. Listening in. Nepalese listeners. We're here for you every week. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of fun. I, let me fire through a couple of iTunes reviews because the T-shirt giveaway has happened. If you haven't got yours yet, maybe you're in the U.K. or somewhere like uh, Serbia <laughs> and you haven't received it yet. But they were sent. Uh, they were sent out. Um, and we got some good feedback on that stuff. So to be part of that, we basically just said, hey, can you leave a review, whatever you like, right? I don't think any of the three of us like this whole bribe, like, send us a five-star review. Well, and then we'll give you, we'll bribe you, we'll pay you for it. Well, that's not real then, is it? So, good, bad, or ugly, this is what people are saying. Let's see. Kelsey White says, Lonnie, Mike, and Phil are the best strength podcast in existence. They don't buy into the bro science of YouTube. They don't try to sell a brand or a drink of their own Kool-Aid, and they don't talk <laughs> down to you as though they're the only ones who know the secret of strength. They're knowledgeable and relatable. Uh, Lonnie and Mike bring the science and the lab knowledge. Phil brings the real-world coaching experience, and all three have put time under the bar that makes their uh, uh, real opinions matter. Great podcast. Uh, a must-listen for anyone just starting in the Iron Game. So that was cool. Thank you, Kelsey. Yeah, that was good. Very Thank nice. you. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, Next one from Sean. He says, like being a fly on the wall with the smartest guys you know. Uh, I found Iron Radio a few years ago trying to find information, intelligent information, uh, on how to get huge and strong, not how to lose weight by doing nothing. Uh, 40 hit and things changed, and I realized I needed to start focusing on the nutrition side of training. Uh, I always neglected it. as if I was ever going to be 225 and lift more than three plates. This is hard for me to read you guys because of the way it printed out from iTunes. Uh, I couldn't get enough of the experience, casual conversation that helped me visualize what I was trying to do. Uh, 
and the educated information that helped me understand why. Now I've got my wife, son, and daughter listening so much we all quote the boys constantly. If you are into strength <laughs> and you want to know more, this podcast allows you to be a fly on the wall with the guys who, you, uh, who know what you are looking for. We've made it through close to 400 episodes, and everyone is a gym. Wow. So sweet, Sean. Thank you for you that. Do. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to fire through some of these here since we're episode 600. Stacy says, the hosts of the Iron Radio podcast highlight all aspects of fitness and more in this Can't Miss podcast. The hosts and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that's helpful to anyone that listens. So that was nice, Stacy. Uh, a couple more here. This is the highlight of my Monday by Ed. Ed Tech, it says. Five stars are definitely not enough. The insight conveyed by Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Dr. Mike Nelson, and Coach Phil Stevens is unmatched. The subject matter is presented in an evidence-based format, not an annoying bro science slant. With two PhDs as hosts, you can get the you be assured that of the educational experience in every episode that they are giving to listeners, and it comes with an incredible amount of knowledge. Also, it is presented in a way that makes it easy to understand with plenty of explanation when the subject matter gets complex. Phil is an experienced strength coach that has an impressive level of experience in many facets of strength sports. He knows how to make people perform at a high level, and this is evident by the incredible levels his lifters achieve. I have listened to every episode for the past six years, and I caught up on all the previous episodes to that. I can wholeheartedly recommend this podcast. The hosts love what they do, and it shows every week. Oh, I almost forgot. You will not find a gap in their timeline. They have produced an episode every week since the beginning. Absolutely the best. So thank you, Ed. Um, yeah, thanks, Ed. That's awesome. It is. And you know what? Thank you for noticing the weekly thing, right? Mm-hmm. When we started this, that was the point. Like, that was that the was whole point. like the goal. Yep. <laughs> the one main goal. Yeah. And, and with life and, I mean, pandemics and competitions and all this stuff, job changes, if that's not your main goal, I mean, that would be my number one advice for anybody starting a podcast, right? Are you going to do this every damn week for at least a year? At least a year and then see where you are. Otherwise, yeah. Because, you know, we want to be this steady presence for people, I guess. Um, from E-X-C-Y-E-D. Exceed? Um, I'm sorry if I'm trashing that. One of my weekly go-tos. Uh, perfect podcast for a nerdy meathead. Weekly research and muscle sport news and very good topic discussions help me stay up to date on the current literature and methods from guys who have walked the walk. It was cool. And then one more, personally influential podcast from Sam. I started listening to the podcast as a beginner lifter at 17 years old when trying to decide on a college major. I switched from business to kinesiology purely because of how interested I was in what the boys talked about over the years. Mm. Wow. Uh, since then, my interests have shifted, and I am pursuing a PhD in neuroscience, but I never would have become interested in science if it weren't for them. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. That is super awesome. Okay. There's a couple more here, but that's enough. I don't want to go on and on about that stuff. Um, But, yes, super awesome. Uh, Yeah, you know what? It's something that makes this worthwhile in addition to our huge salaries. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We make a killing from this. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Here's a couple of science tidbits before we go to break. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Hemp-based meat contains more protein than beef by Annie Lennon. This is from Lab Roots, one of the news catchers that I get. 
Hemp seeds are known to be high in protein with continued pushes toward healthier lifestyles and regulations about cannabis um, and its associates relaxing across the world. Some are taking advantage of the seeds nutritional value. Uh, by weight, hemp seeds contain similar levels of protein to beef and lamb, with 25% of their calories coming from protein. Uh, it says two to three tablespoons has 11 grams of protein. But more than this, hemp seeds are considered a complete protein source, something rare in the plant world, meaning that, that they provide all the essential amino acids. It can only be attained by the diet. Now, sidebar here, and Mike, I'll, I'd like to get your input on this too, because you know a lot about at least like the... the cannabinoids and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. but when i hear complete protein from a plant i my first thought is well soy looks pretty complete you know and i'm not too impressed by it so do you know anything about the either the diaas or the pdcaas for for hemp hemp seed like is it high quality it's got the essential amino acids apparently but in what amounts or <clears throat> You know. Yeah, I have to. Uh, I'd have to look up again, but I want to say like the digestibility is like up in the high nineties. I think the biological value is like eighty-five, ninety, somewhere in there. So it's in terms of plants, it's probably one of the the top ones up there. Interesting. Um, you know, again, a lot of that goes back to how it's processed and everything too um, because if you're processing it into a hemp-based protein powder then you can kind of concentrate it um, down like you can even rice protein ends up being relatively high because you can concentrate it down as a protein good point um, if you're talking about just the the raw material it's still pretty high but again you've got a lot of other things in there too so the volume that you need to eat then goes up yeah so a lot of it i think just depends upon what uh how are you consuming it in what form but it's yeah in terms of plant proteins it's definitely one of the highest ones for sure i'd love to see a study comparing it to soy you know because that's such a fallback yeah. it seems like for vegans and whatnot mm -hmm. listeners if you're not familiar most plant proteins are incomplete most animal proteins are complete meaning they have all of those nine uh, Roughly nine. I don't want to get into the weeds. Uh, essential amino acids or indispensable amino acids. But then beyond being complete, you can get much more granular. And over the years, they've had lots of different protein quality tests, right? Biological value and protein efficiency ratio and protein digestibility corrected amino acid score and digestible indispensable amino acid score. And so the, the, the D-I-S, right, the D-I-S, I don't know how they're actually trying to make that roll off the tongue, is probably the most sophisticated, most recent one. And you know that's where uh, I have a great slide. Maybe I'll even fire it to Phil. He, he could put it on Facebook. I don't know if there's a copyright thing. Mm -hmm. But Don Lehman had a great talk at the ASN meeting this year, the virtual one in Seattle, um, and just a huge table full of the – the PDCAS and the DIAAS of a lot of different proteins. And so the higher the number, of course, the better. And those are the, the tables that really make whey look so good. Um, but I'd like to see the uh, hemp on there. Um, last quick note. It says they also contain a lot of fiber, both soluble and insoluble. As such, researchers and startups have started developing meat-like products from the seeds. Um, Lund University in Sweden, for example, have succeeded in creating a vegan meat from hemp that matches meat's texture. And then New Zealand's Massey University has developed a hemp plant-based minced meat product with aims to market it by 2021. So they're on it. You know, the, the, the 
hemp and cannabis gold rush continues, I think. Yeah. You know, so interesting, though, yeah. for you vegans. Yeah, the people have found a study. I haven't pulled it up yet from Van Loon's lab that looks at protein content of amino acid composition of commercially available plant-based protein isolates, uh, which is a open access from amino acids 2018. So people can pull that one up if they want a more direct, direct comparison of uh, the amino acid breakdown. Is hemp in there, you say, or not sure? Uh, it looks like it is. I just pulled it up, cool. so I'm not sure exactly what right they're saying. But it looks like they went through and compared a lot of the amino acid content um, from, yeah, everything from oat to wheat to potato, whey, caseinate, uh, everything else across the board. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of percentage of essential amino acids, the percentage of total protein, again, most of your whey, milk, caseinate, egg are going to be higher. Oddly enough, uh, looks like pea, corn, and potato were in terms of percentage, uh, relatively high, too. So, yeah, I think what you said yeah, earlier... That gets back to the food volume and everything right. else, Right, yes, is the volume, yeah. the, the the total amount you have to consume is key, right? Uh, or like you said, even rice protein or corn, you'll see some interesting um, value to those sorts of things uh, when you isolate it down and really concentrate it. We're not saying you can eat stuff like buckets of rice um, and get you know, the equivalent of whey protein, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just after the, now the rice protein isolates might be a little different story. So anyway, yeah, but more, more yeah. of the plants to get uh, the equivalent, right? Yeah. Um, this one, Mike, this is also one I thought you, you'd, you'd be interested in, but perspective, ketone supplementation in sports, does it work from Valenzuela and colleagues and if this sounds like something we just covered, we may have, but you got to understand that a lot of this stuff, if they're popular topics, they keep coming up in the literature, right? So advances in nutrition. This is from late October of this year. It says oral ketone supplements have gained popularity in recent years. There is a biological rationale for a potential ergogenic effect. Um, for example, altering muscle fuel preference during exercise or promoting glycogen sparing. Uh, also favoring cognition during performance and exertion uh, or my muscle glycogen synthesis after exercise. However, uh, literature does not support a benefit of acute ketone supplementation on sports performance, cognition, or muscle recovery, although more research is needed. In addition, acute intake of ketone supplements might be associated with gastrointestinal symptoms. So in summary, there is currently insufficient evidence to support the overall effectiveness of ketone supplements in sports. I think the key there is more research is needed. Uh, Mike, I think last time we discussed this, you said all these reviews are great, but we need more direct observations. Great. Right. Another review. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's just not... A ton of, I'd say, kind of more randomized controlled trials in even higher level recreational athletes on it. Um, and I understand why it's a funding issue and they're a pain in the ass to do and, and I get it. So it's easier to write a review on it. It's kind of still a novel, sexy topic. I agree. There's some definitely potential mechanisms there that are super interesting. But the data that I've seen, I would agree with kind of their conclusion that ketones in and of themselves for pure ergogenic uh, aids, so performance enhancing, eh, 
I'm not convinced yet. I think for potential cognition effects due to fatigue and exercise. So if you're talking about complex sports where are you going to make better decisions at the end of uh, four quarters of an American football game versus not using ketone supplementation and you're running full speed into another human being. So your risk of having a TBI or you know some type of a brain injury go up in terms of potential safety. Yeah, I think that's a lot more of a interesting perspective. Um, I think ketones are really interesting in terms of different pathologies. So now if you start getting outside of normal physiology, um, I just interviewed Dr. Uh, Tommy Wood and Dr. Dom D'Agostino for a product I'm doing for the Kerrig Institute on is ketogenic diets useful for traumatic brain injury, yeah. TBI. Yeah. Um, so there's some really fascinating data there. Again, it's still very preliminary. So yeah, I would say ergogenic, yeah. Maybe not so much, but I think there's uh, other potential uses for them that are probably going to pan out to be a little bit more beneficial, I think. Yeah. I I was always most interested in the brain injury stuff, right? Because if, if glucose yeah. metal- metabolism gets all screwed up, then having yep. an alternate fuel like a ketone there, hey, use me, you know, oh, okay, maybe that's going to be something that's very helpful. Yeah. Especially now, I mean, you can use a ketone salt, right? So take the BHB molecule, beta-hydroxybutyrate. And they covalently bind it to some type of, you know, sodium, magnesium. They can spread it across four of them. So they have what's called a quad salt. Um, and from Dom, if you increase the levels with like C8, uh, caprylic oil, like an MCT, you can you know, get like one, one and a half, you know, maybe a little bit higher on a ketone meter. Uh, the esters you can get, we've done this in the, the Karakima performance course I teach. Uh, we've gotten three, four molar within like 20 minutes. Wow. Um, so you can get really high numbers there. And to me, that makes it much more fascinating to study. It's a different mechanism, but it also makes your studies easier, right? Because before, if you're doing someone who's doing a ketogenic diet, and oh, I get yeah. to find a group of people who want to do a ketogenic diet, verify they actually got into ketosis. And so there's a bunch of other stuff going on. And then from a pure sports performance standpoint, People are used to consuming supplements for uh, potential advantages, um, like the study from Cox, which was published in Cell quite a while ago. You could combine them then with carbohydrates. Um, so for like the Tour de France, Team Sky did some of that stuff too, which who knows if that was more for cognition benefit or to potentially reduce injury risk. If you're screaming down the side of a mountain on a bike and you fall off, you maybe hit your head. <laughs> maybe it'd be better to have some ketones. Um, so yeah, lots of fascinating areas to go in for sure. Yeah. And I know we said it before, but, um, just the fact that you can be in ketosis and be in a carb replete scenario, right? You're not semi starved. You're not on a super low carb diet. Absolutely bizarre. And to me, that's the most curious thing is which fuel, uh, and tissue, right, is going to prefer which fuel, like glucose versus these ketones, which shouldn't be there at the same time as abundant glucose, you know. Um, anyway, interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it, it appears, which is very preliminary, that your your body still prefers uh, glucose at that point. And then the question is, if you take an exogenous, so an external source of ketones, if you get them high enough at some point, do they start to have an acute, like, impairing effect on glycolysis? 
Interesting. Varying PDH enzymes, things of that nature. Right. We know that happens long term with a ketogenic diet, um, but could it happen with a supplement? Maybe. And then also from talking to Dom, the esters are so effective that in theory you can take too much and get into basically an acidotic situation. You'd have to still consume a fair amount, and they're ungodly expensive right now. But, you know, like all things, anything that can be helpful can potentially hurt you too. I got one more here. Uh, and Well, one and a half, and you'll see what I mean. And then we'll go to break. Uh, intake of nuts or nut products does not lead to weight gain, independent of dietary substitution instructions. So, again how you're being coached nutritionally is they're trying to tease that out here a systematic review and meta-analysis i just found this interesting because instead of just volume of food right um there is this idea that well you know n- things like nuts and seeds are so calorie dense that you you know i mean i was eating handfuls of um sesame sticks like oat brand sesame sticks yesterday and today i'm looking at this i'm like jesus i just ate like 36 grams of fat and like you know a couple of two big <laughs> handfuls you know probably good for weight gain actually but this is i mean in addition to other things when you're shoveling everything in like like phil does or at least used to i don't know if phil's ever gonna do that again oh. uh, <laughs> but he sounds excited about it but um Nuts here. It says several clinical investigations report consuming nuts will not cause weight gain. We performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of published nut feeding trials with and without dietary uh, instructions, essentially, to determine if there are changes in body weight or composition. So the studies they looked at had to be more than three weeks long. Well, I would think so if you're doing a weight gain study, but... (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. I don't know if I'd set the bar that low, but, you know, when they do a meta-analysis, they got to find enough studies, I imagine, you know, because yeah. it'd be nice to say 12 weeks, but then there's no studies. Um, anyway, 55 studies were included in the meta-analysis. In studies without dietary substitution instructions, there was no change in body weight or body fat percentage. Uh, in studies with dietary substitution instructions, there was no change in body weight. Uh, however, there was a significant decrease in body fat. So decrease. Uh, there was no change in body mass index uh, for either category of studies. Nut-enriched diet interventions did not result in changes in body weight, um, body mass index, or weight change in studies either with or without substitution instructions. Slight decreases in body fat may occur if substitution instructions are used. So... That's very interesting stuff. Um, maybe it, they're just so filling because of the fat and the fiber, you know, that you're like, well, okay, I don't want another handful of peanuts and walnuts. I don't know. Um, hmm. But I thought that was interesting stuff. Uh, I, I think they're just talking about, again, gen pop. They're not talking about like the way we would do it. It's, I still think it's a good idea to hammer the peanut butter shakes and bring on the, you know, mm-hmm. because of the, it's just a great calorie source. Um when, when well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Nuts are full of tons of phytonutrients and stuff too, aren't they? Well, I mean, they're pretty yeah. dense in nutrients, right? As well as calories. No, true. Um, like for yeah, example, so. Brazil nuts are so rocking loaded with selenium yeah. that you can get selenosis if you eat too many of yeah. them. Yeah. So, so, yeah, no good point. And then the half study here. Uh, this is very chewy. I I looked at it. This might be something I talk with Mike about off the microphone here, but. <laughs> 
Fructose-stimulated de novo lipogenesis is promoted by inflammation. And I think we've kind of known this, but this is very mechanistic. And Phil, me, and Mike, maybe Phil and I in the early days even more so about, you know, fructose, not your mm-hmm. friend it, when you're chugging 100 grams yeah. of it at a time. Um, but this is from Nature Metabolism. Um, it basically says non-alcoholic uh, steatohepatitis or NASH uh, involves stress and inflammation, a key macronutrient proposed to increase this fatty liver, essentially non-alcoholic fatty liver, is fructose. Excessive intake of fructose also causes intestinal barrier deterioration and endotoxemia. So I usually am more skeptical of this whole, you know, intestinal barrier breakdown thing. Uh, But Mike, I know you're up on that stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Here we show using mice, essentially, and I'm going to very broad brush. Please go look at this study from Todoric and colleagues if you are essentially a physiologist or a biochemist. But they looked at um, mice, they looked at their microbiota, they looked at some different mucosal signaling, uh, antimicrobial peptides, um, and trying to counteract this fructose-induced barrier deterioration. Uh, they looked at lipogenic enzymes, etc., um, and the amount of things like acetyl-CoA, right, things that are going to lead, be the building blocks to new fat formation uh, in mouse and human hepatocytes and liver cells. But what I think is interesting is they're linking this gut intestinal bacteria deterioration that fructose is, is inducing to the inflammation and the fatty liver. Because you know we've known that fatty liver is especially a problem when you have a lot of fructose in the diet. And I, I actually show slides in class about how people who are uh, pre-diabetic, it hits them even worse. And there are some reasons for that. So fatty liver, not cool. You know, again, they say non-alcoholic fatty liver, of course, because if you're, you know, if you're pounding six or eight drinks, you're going to end up with this sort of acute fatty liver. And if you do that all the time, you're going to have alcoholic fatty liver because the way alcohol ethanol is metabolized. But yeah, Uh, Mike, have you seen anything with fructose in the liver? I'm sorry, the intestinal barrier? I've seen some stuff, but again, like you said, it's it's interesting because this would, if we jump to human physiology, which is a big jump from mice and rat data, but it may explain why athletes who consume fructose usually don't have many issues and it's been used to get across some of the different transporters in the gut to restore glycogen faster, liver glycogen, all that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. Um, but in an unhealthy population, it appears to get metabolized a little bit different. And also in, in mice, as you know, Lonnie, that they have a super high level of DNL, so de novo lipogenesis. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the early studies that were done on mice fed them massive amounts of fructose. And because the little buggers had higher DNL rates, they saw much more destructive issues than they did in a healthy human population too so that's yeah kind of one of the caveats but it would make sense that it is maybe triggered to insult inflammation and if you're an unhealthy human with super high levels of inflammation yeah probably mainlining a bunch of fructose is probably not going to be high on my, yeah. <laughs> high on my list yeah and exercise a lot yeah probably not as much of a concern. right no good point if you're exercising a lot that has a chronically anti-inflammatory effect and obviously right. you're going to be burning some of those calories I've seen enough data, even in people, though, um, as far as, like, uh, the formation of, again, non-alcoholic fatty liver, that fructose freaks me out the way it's consumed. I'm not saying don't eat apples, right? But I am saying don't chug 64-ounce colas, 
you know, um, with ridiculous amounts, way over 100 grams of high fructose corn syrup. I just think that's problematic. I've never seen anything about one of the mechanisms, though. Another link with the inflammation being the, you know, uh, essentially the intestinal barrier um, partly breaking down and whatnot. So, yikes. Yeah. Okay, that's more than enough. When we come back, we're going to talk then and now uh, as far as Iron Radio here in episode 600. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rated in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. (laughs) 
Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. Uh, so Phil's got to get to the gym today, and we're going to get some input from him first here. Let's see. Uh, then and now. So what was different at the beginning, Phil? Or like, let's even start with why did we start Iron Radio and has that changed? I don't think it's changed. I mean, I think we've done a really good job of keeping the mission the same. And basically it was it was two things. Uh, I think we started kind of as a backlash against bro science. Um, yeah, we, we started at the beginning of the age where you were seeing lots of just crap being vaulted into the universe as far as fitness goes. <laughs> um, everybody had a microphone all of a sudden and there were very few microphones that were worthy of being handed to the people. Um, yeah. So basically we wanted to put out quality information, um, at, and do so in like a public radio format, quality free information that was non-biased, uh, no commercials, no sponsors, no things like that, which I think we've done a good job at. And then the other one was consistency. That's one thing that me and you agreed on from the start was like, we're just going to do it every week. You yeah. know, even if that means, you know, we, okay, we got to record two episodes this week because we're missing next week, whatever, whatever it took. Yeah. Or one of us is going to miss and the show goes on. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we we never stopped, so it's just like we did what it took to put out an episode. Mm-hmm. Those were the two main things. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think um, the, when you watch television or a radio show like NPR, it's always there during uh, every uh-huh. week. It, you know, it's unprofessional to skip around a couple months and then take a couple weeks or months off. Like, what the hell? Yeah, you know. <laughs> now, I mean, look at look at the shows. People like series of shows. I would be so happy if like, there's there's two or three series of shows, and I have to wait like months, a year for a new one to come out. If I just got one a week, I'd be a happy person. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we do that for you guys for nothing. There you for go, free. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, you... and I mean we've been. I think a big one is the the non bias thing. Of course, we have our own personal biases. Sure, that's not. You can't go without that. But we don't have a a paid for bias that almost every show does. And that's something we agreed from the start. And it's not that we haven't been um, offered such things uh, you yeah, know, yeah. from companies. And, and hey, why don't you guys talk about our protein? And that's not, that's fine. I don't have a problem talking about something that I use. Yep. But if you just because you send it to me free, I'm not going to just say it's great. I mean, I think I proved that with our Bang Energy Drink right. review. Right. I was just going to say. <laughs> so. I'm sitting on a case of it right now. He just doesn't want to tell anyone. So. Yeah. Um, and I, I like being brutally honest. I mean, and that's something that I changed a long time ago. I had numerous sponsors at the beginning of my career, and I just dropped them all. Um, yeah. Because I just feel more comfortable that way. You know, Phil, so. this is it's inevitable and Mike knows this consulting for supplement companies and stuff. Oh, Early yeah. on, they value your intellect. And then very quickly, uh my wife and I over the years we 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 called it the gravy train years or sometimes it's months, which is 
They just want you to, you know, they're going to pay you well to do your job. But then very quickly, they want you, they want to influence what you're saying, right? It's yes. just they start thinking, oh, this, you know, several thousand dollars a month, you know, I get, I, I, I want to control what Dr. Lowry or Dr. Nelson says or, or Phil as a gym owner or, a, you know, um, I don't know, influencer, if you will. You know, and it's like, you, no, see, you just crossed the line. That's what you don't get to do. So I guess we're done here, right? And then you just have to kind of politely just say goodbye or feel not so politely, just flip them off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're number one. But, but, Phil, because I know you got to go here, just let's also touch on the competitive changes. Uh, over oh. the years, uh, like where were you when we started? Because you're really the the focus of the competition here, of course. Um, then and now, I'm pretty sure I was still trying to deadlift 700 when we started. Wow! And that was very much that was very much a goal. Um, like I was pushing deadlift hard, and a lot of that was due to the fact that I was also I had just been diagnosed with you need a hip replacement. Um, so I had had a bunch of hip pain. Yeah. So squat was definitely on the back burner. Not that, I mean, I still did it like the competition before my hip replacement, I squatted six something. So it's not like I wasn't squatting, but it definitely wasn't, uh, I couldn't concentrate on it. <laughs> it freaking hurt. Um, so it was kind of an afterthought and I was really pushing the deadlift. And then what's changed since then, like five and a half years ago, I had to hip replacement and all of a sudden, Oh my God, I can squat without pain. And so, I was good at deadlift so long. It was like I really took the time to put that way on back burner and uh, concentrate on my squat. So, and who knows? I mean, knock on wood here. I mean, I'm hoping to get 800 ish at the meet coming up Ooh. in March. So, mm. and that'll be a big PR for me. And, Hell yeah. But I hit, I've hit 725 uh, on squat. So, um, my bench is crap now, comparatively. And I don't compete in there as much. I mean, competition-wise, I used to compete a lot. And now it's usually once a year in powerlifting at a big event, and then I'll throw in some Highland games and stuff like that for fun. Um, and it's not that I don't take it any more serious. It's just that I know that I, I just can't do it as often. It's yeah. I, I just can't. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm old. I'm beat up. I, I very... I'm very picky, and when I step on the platform, the love is still there just as much as it ever was, and I get a lot of that out of, you know, now I coach more people that go on the platform than maybe ever. So It's a natural transition, isn't it, from, you know, yeah. just competitor yeah. to – in the beginning, I think you're – let's say you're 70% competitor, 30% coach, and now that's kind yeah. of flipped in a way. Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, so, I don't – yeah. I mean, I still have to go up there and – I don't care what anybody says. Uh, me still getting on the platform and doing what I do or me going in there today and squatting heavy still as a strength coach has a very positive effect on that side of my business. My athletes like seeing that. Right. Oh, he's still fucking doing it. You That's know, the right. old man still got mm -hmm. it. Example. You know, and that means a lot um, that I'm yep. still in there leading by example, even though now it's much less. I train. I even train less often. Yep. You know, than I did before. I did four or five hard days a week when we were starting and then some Highland games in between and this and that. And now I just, I have to pick my battles. And so my training itself has changed a ton yes. over the years. And that's reflected in what we talk about in the show. Yes, so. it is. You could tell the, the flavor over the years has, yes. has changed a little bit um, as yep. far as, you know, from the, a little bit more green 
not that we were green in the beginning. We were pretty <laughs> jaded to yeah. begin with. Yeah. <laughs> but but it has become a little bit more of that. Like the T-shirts, right, that we just gave away, that sort of that war-scarred veteran kind of uh, thing. Um, but, you know, those are – if people have a certain amount of education, either through experience or academics or both – uh, and you're in the trenches and stuff. Yeah, those are the people that you'd like to talk to, not the 21-year-old who's on lots of gas and says, look at my abs, you know. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> as far as the show goes, too, I think it's very evident. I think um, even our choices of guests has changed. Oh, yeah. If you look at episodes yeah. 1 through 100, uh, we weren't as picky about our guests. We kind of gave anybody a voice. And now it's like, nah. You don't get to be on the show. Right. <laughs> you know? We're not giving you a voice. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. We're, we're, you know, basically, we only have quality guests. Yeah. That's it. Like, if you don't have something quality to say, it's like you just don't get to be on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think everything's matured. So, right on. Yeah. In fact, um, episode 104, Mike, it looks like that might have been the first one. Oh, no, 76. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, Mike. Mike was a, a repeated like uh, guest it, it, to, to Phil's point, right? I'd rather have quality guests on more than once than just start having new people just because they're some you know YouTube hotness uh, that, like Phil says, doesn't necessarily deserve to have the mic in front of them. Everybody wants to give tutorials and stuff, and you know, do you really have the experience, the years and years to even open your mouth? But Mike, Mike, you started. Um, we talked about metabolic inflexibility back episode 76. I'm just Googling this, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, episode 104, you're t we were talking about um, uh, it's entitled Muscle and Nutrition Conference, I think. So probably we've done yeah quite a bit of conferences. I always lamented not being able to talk about conferences anymore. At some point when we all used to write for uh, like T Nation, I would love yeah. to write little conference reviews. And then at one point they just didn't want they didn't want to do that anymore. Um, no, that yeah, that was yeah, yeah, and I mean, I grew up reading you know your stuff on you know Teen Nation and about all the. I remember the one of the, the CLA conference you went to. Oh in yeah, country or Finland or something. Finland. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's so amazing. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah, no, I hear you. Um, hang on, everybody, I'm just clicking around here. Uh. Yeah, there's been a real transition, and I think for all three of us too is it's faster and easier for us to just talk about it than to write stuff, you know. So, oh, yeah. and I know you you probably still write the most of all of us, Mike. But uh, it's not that we don't like to do so. And I imagine there are some people uh, on some of the the traditional publications that I used to write for. They're probably like, "Where's Lowry?" Well, Lowry's here on Iron Radio, right? That's it, or you know, or Phil too. Uh, Phil did a like in some ways like Rob. Phil was a lot of behind the scenes. Occasionally he'd emerge and you know write stuff with his name on it, but a lot of like ghost writing and editing and um, moderating and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just too I mean, it's too easy to those, talk about it verbally. Yeah, you know? those those articles take time. I mean, I I feel bad if Sugar's listening. I still owe you an article from six months ago, but he oh. knows how late I am on it. <laughs> Just because it's, I want to have the references in there. I want to make sure it's like, you know, actual 
something very legit in the amount of time it takes, especially when you're referencing oh, something, yeah. even something you're familiar with. Evidence, yeah. And, you know, make it in a readable format. I mean, that that takes time. And you know, I generally write five, six days a week for my newsletter, you know, as it is, plus other content and, yeah, and coaching and everything else. And there's only so much time in the day, too. So, it's yeah, it takes a while. It does. It does. I I have one article left that I do want to send to Chris Shugart, see if he'd be interested in that. But by and large, yeah, I feel like in many ways, the that golden era where you could actually get paid uh, in the fitness and food and nutrition world to write stuff and have a nice reference list, 20 or 30 references long, kind of present like here is a current state, almost like a mini lit review. Those had mm-hmm. so much value. And I think a lot of intellectual people gravitated to that. And I feel like since then, uh, there's just been this drift into opinion-based writing. And, you know, listen, professional opinion has some value, but it's not the same thing. I mean, you could go to look at stuff like uh, Oxford's Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. I've got a great presentation from those guys. And they talk about how years in practice alone, if you don't stay up on the literature – actually leads to worse outcomes for your clients. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you have to stay up on the literature. And so by just doing opinion-based coaches' opinions and whatnot, uh, and I'm not pointing at any one publication here, but um, uh, you know, I, I would pan to the bottom of the article, just a quick spot check. Are there references or citations at all? Because if it's not evidence-based, you know, again, CEBM and a lot of these other places, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, I've seen articles you know, they're not as valuable as when you can point to specific papers and science that you understand. But I mean, if you get someone who's an internet influencer and they don't value or understand the science, why would you expect them to have a you know thirty reference list at the end of their article? They're not going to do that because they don't get it. Frankly, you know. Yeah, and unfortunately, most online publications—not all of them, but most of them—have realized that. Oh, if we're a popular site, we don't necessarily need to pay writers to do stuff because people are submitting stuff all of the time. And if X article that's a opinion, controversy, what have you, gets, you know, tens Clicks. of thousands to hundreds of thousands of eyeballs on it right. versus this one that's a little bit more research based but only got half the eyeballs on it and we had to pay this person. Oh, well, let's let's just do more of this other stuff here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because if, if you're – it's almost like sales, bottom line sales. If we sell yeah. a crap supplement and a lot of people buy this pre-workout you know, product, um, who cares if it works? It sells, you know, and that's not good thinking. <laughs> that's not, not honorable in any case, but it's the same yeah. thing with that. Like, yeah, cr- it's like crap articles or – well, not crap all the time, sometimes. But, yeah, if it gets lots of views – well, that means more advertising revenue, blah, 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 you know, or more sales of the products that go with it to whatever. So um, what about, as we just sort of slowly wind this down, Mike, what about stuff like um, your interest in strength, personal performance and competition and that kind of stuff? Has that changed over the years at all? Um, probably not too much. I mean, 100% honest, like I hate competition. I don't like it at <laughs> yeah. all, period. Um, <clears throat> I forced myself to do it for for many years. I did like just a ton of local grip competitions, and I've done you know actual legit powerlifting meets and everything else. And 
uh, not that I was any good at any of them per se, but it was just if I'm going to have athletes at a you know intermediate to somewhat advanced level, and they're going to do a competition, even just a local meet, then I didn't want to say that I've never done any of that. You yeah. know, I wanted to yeah. at least have some experience, not to the level Phil has, of just going through the process. And I think it's probably good to do things you don't really necessarily enjoy all the time either. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the grip stuff is a little bit more fun, uh, partially just because it's it's so niche. No one even really knows what you're doing anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. There is that, but yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I think early on I was probably trying to do more of the traditional lifts of, you know, back squat, bench press, and by lateral things, and at the time my structure was probably not set up to handle that, and so that resulted in lots of hip pain and lots of injuries and things of that nature of trying to, you know, push a square peg into a round, round hole, um, I finally got better at just not doing that and finding out, oh, if I do different things, it doesn't beat me up as much. And most of that was just a realization of, you know, I remember at one point getting so beat up. I was at a conference. I remember sitting in an Epsom salt bath, just everything in my whole body just hurt. And I'm like thinking, what am I doing? You know, I'm not going to set any records doing this powerlifting thing. I'm just beating the crap out of myself. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, I really like not being in pain. Oh, what a novel idea. (laughs) Yeah. So just having a cost associated for what your goal is. And then within that, I was explaining this to a client the other day. Like, what is your overarching goal and what are you trying to do? Right. So if you said to me, like, what is your overarching goal? I would say, yeah, just probably kiteboard more. Um, And within that, I can't kiteboard every day currently. But, you know, some of the grip stuff, some of the cardiovascular stuff, some of the other lifts have a pretty high transfer to kiteboarding. And that also then sets up what risks are you willing to take. So if that's my number one goal, getting injured in the gym to me is just, it's, it may happen, but it's I'm not going to push myself as much because my risk tolerance is just so low. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be in pain. However... You know, if I happen to get dropped 20 feet out of the sky under the water and get injured, it's going to suck really bad and I'm going to be pissed. But I've already kind of accepted that that's okay because that's closer to my goal. So I think just getting more, I don't know if mature is the right word, but just putting more thought into what is it do you really want to achieve? What does that look like? And what is the cost associated that you want to pay for that? I like the cost analysis there because that's what's changed for me, I think, is yeah. being post-competitive and my joints are really bad. And that's genetic like from mom, bless her heart. But um, yeah, I don't want to blow out my back and never be able to squat again, you know, or yeah. my, my left knee. I already blew it out sprinting uphill, you know, um, just not good. Um, so it's funny the historically and i'm gonna make this very brief but i started iron radio saying i was a former competitive bodybuilder and then you know i, I competed again uh, i don't know after a couple of years of doing it and then listeners could go back and if you want to see what how i looked at all that but a lot like you mike i'm very introverted i don't like to expose myself, you know, in that way. And so it was a, it was a a courage challenge for me. Do I have the guts to get on stage in my underwear in front of a thousand people, you know, (laughs) 
kind of thing, mm-hmm. at, at least at the bigger shows. But yeah, and so that's part of why I did it. It was just to test myself kind of thing. Um, and, you know, can I pit my education against guys that are, in, especially in those open competitions, using all kinds of stuff? Oh, um, yeah. So there was that too. And, you know, and now here I am back after going through that for that period of, uh, that was just like a one to two year period. Um, here I am back to saying I'm post competitive. But for me now, yeah, I'm old enough now being in my early 50s that, damn. You know, uh, what am I doing with 405 on my back, you know, like I did for so many years? And I, I know you powerlifters don't think that's heavy, but for me, that was very heavy. Um, if it's going to blow me out, like the cost is too high. I don't want to lose the privilege, you know, of being able to squat or deadlift or do, do all my bodybuilding stuff. And that's why, again, I think bodybuilding is great because you don't have to do the heavy bilateral compound movements only. Yeah. You know, you have such a variety of um, not crappy machines or some real cheesy machines out there, but some of the more solid machines or cable work or whatever. Um, and you can really do it your whole life. And that's what I want. I want to be a lifer. Uh, I'm always going to be, I can't not lift. And even during the pandemic, you know, I'm up and down the stairs to my basement. Um, even during intense work problems, like right now during COVID outbreak here in my state and everything, um, I'm still trying to get down there minimally, uh, you know, three times a week just because it's that, it's that island in in the storm, you know. It's something that's steady, and and I guess I'll just end with that's why we do the show every week, right? Steady, we're here. It's professional. We we're actually professionals. <laughs> we're trained. <laughs> we really do these things. We're not excited amateurs with a microphone trying to give tutorials that we don't understand. I don't know. Like I always, I've had this discussion multiple times with friends of. If a younger person comes up, you you want to try to tell them all the things to try to avoid, but it doesn't really seem to work that well. Maybe it works with a couple people, but if you can guide their experience where the mistakes they make are ones they learn from, but not enough to destroy them, that they'll learn from. So I also think of the show and education and everything else is like, yeah, maybe we can just put the bumper rails up so you, you just go in the ditch and not off the cliff. <laughs> yeah, no, I like it. Uh, you're right. I, there's a lot of things you got to live through, but um, I have some people that I consider like a mentor over the years that I haven't even met because, you know, it's a podcast or a YouTube or books yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and if we can fit that role a little bit so people don't waste tons of time and money or kill themselves, yeah, then I think we've done something good. Uh Last thing, I just wanted to say thank you 600 times to all of the listeners over the years because, um, yeah, this has been a labor of love for us. We don't really make money at this. And um, a little bit of the revenue after we pay for the server bill, uh, we've we've used to help a student or an athlete um, with research or a, a little tiny boost of travel money and things like that. So there is that sort of philanthropic aspect to this too it's very small but um at least it you know something that we're trying to do with all this so okay well as always we'll see you next week then thank you iron radio is accepting donations if you like what we do the professors the scientists the bodybuilding show promoters the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, 
please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.